I'm Becky Quick, and you're listening to Squawk Pod. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, it's Jobs Friday, unemployment at a 50-year low, but is it all good news? You know, this kind of a mealy peach of a report. Yuck. Our panel on whether the economy is ripe for recession. Plus, tech billionaires turn on capitalism. People that want to succeed, succeed. And I know it's not politically correct to say that, to be honest with you. I think mathematically that's incorrect. And Steve Schwarzman recalls his worst trade. I realized I was about to cry. I'm just not allowed to cry. The private equity legend tells Becky Quick about his early struggles and Becky's thoughts on that conversation, which you'll hear only on the podcast. To hear this guy who you think of as making other people cry. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Friday, October 4th, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three... Two, one, cue, please. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe's out today. Our guest host is Steve Grasso. He is the director of institutional sales at Stuart Frankel. He's a CNBC fast money trader. He's a frequent guest here on Squawk Box. And <laughs> keep we've got going, a lot to keep mix going it up. back. <laughs> and he's wonderful. And we love him. <laughs> It's the first Friday of the month, Jobs Friday, when the Labor Department releases the number of American jobs lost or created the month before, as well as the latest unemployment number. Jobs Friday is always on a Friday, and it's always at 8.30 a.m. So on Squawk Box, it's pretty much always a free-for-all. Yeah, there's nothing it's great for me the other point there, right as well. there are a lot of voices in this conversation, including our economics reporter Steve Leisman, plus all of the noisy traders behind our reporter Rick Santelli, who joins the team from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Andrew will walk you through the rest of our panel. Joining us now, Austin Goolsby. In the Windy City, University of Chicago Booth School of Business professor and former Council of Economic Advisors chairman. It's great to see you, my friend. Kate Moore is here, Good chief equity you. strategist at BlackRock. Dave McIntosh is joining us, president of the Club for Growth and a former U.S. congressman. And it's great to have everybody here. Let's get to Diana Olick. She has the numbers. 136,000 non-farm payrolls increased by 136,000 in September. The unemployment rate fell to 3.5 percent, down from 3.7 percent. That is the lowest level since 1969. Diana, thank you. We're going to talk about all of this with some reaction from our jobs panel right now. Uh, Kate, let's start with you. We never put anybody on the spot with saying exactly what that number was going to be, but you were looking for a strong number, and this is... Uh, this feels like a really that. solid number. The number I was going to give was 159 with some downside. I feel like, you know, 136 is a healthy number, especially because you saw the good health care number. Um, we expected a little weakness in manufacturing and retail. I think that's kind of par for the course of where we are in the cycle. So I feel really good about this data, especially in light of what we had earlier this week in terms of the ISM. So uh, I think equities will do well through the balance of the day. Hey, Steve, you've had a, a minute to dig through some of that. What jumps out to you as the most important parts in this report? I just was trying to see the last time we had a three and a half percent unemployment rate. And it looks like you got to go back to 1969 for one. Look, here's the problem. And we sort of flagged this problem back uh, in August is that August is very typically revised higher. So the slowdown we thought we had in August at 130, which we thought was, hey, we're coming down to uh, the place where we think we ought to be. That was revised up 168. Yeah, never mind. I like the revisions. I think those are good. I I think that tells us that we're um, uh, doing a little bit better than we thought we were doing. Retail has lots of problems, down 11,000 and then down 6,000. We have to watch that sector. There's a huge transformation, as you know, happening over there. Look, there's two scenarios that we're watching for here. 
Scenario number one is a sort of expected slowdown as the crazy 200-plus job gains of last year come back down to normal. If we can settle and call it a 125 to 150 range, that would be good. And we're more worried about the weakness going down below 100,000. I think the idea that, that we're now in a zone where it looks okay, it's pretty comfortable, it's not great, but it's not terribly weak, I call it a win. Hey, Rick, walk us through the market reaction. To me, the biggest news, without a doubt, is that the markets looked at it as good news, stocks and treasury yields, but it's really a bad report, and not for the job side. Wages, this is terrible. Mm. Unchanged month over month, under 3%, 2.9 on a year-over, excuse me, month-over-month, year-over-year basis. This, this, these aren't good numbers. It's all about the money. Austin, what do you think of this report? You know, this kind of a mealy peach of a report. We're, we're a little <laughs> under what, what the forecast was. It's okay. Like Steve said, it's, it's okay, but it's, not, it's definitely not great. Austin, though, you're looking at the wage issue, uh, decelerating, not accelerating. How important is that to you? I think it's pretty important. Um, now, th- that wages are steady after we've had a few, several months where, th- where they were growing. Hopefully, this is a blip. But, I mean, I'm telling you, the thing driving this whole thing is that the GDP growth rate is slowing down. And a lot of the forecasters are now saying that they expect a one-handle for the rest of the year. If we get GDP growth falling down into the ones I, I think the jobs numbers are going to fall apart and the wage numbers are going to fall apart. Dave, what do you think? Uh, growth expectations for the rest of the year. What are yours? You know, I think they're continuing to be strong in the two to two and a half percent. From a political standpoint, this is very good news. The fact the unemployment rate is in a, an historic low. That's what most people around the country look at. And the job creation rate is averaging now at 160, 160,000 a month. When you compare that to pre-Trump, the, the Obama era at 109, that's very good news that he can take to the public and say, we're going to continue to grow the economy, create jobs. And the wage, it's a slight downward trend in the direction, but it's still a positive increase rather than a decrease in average wages. Sounds like a, a Goldilocks number to me. So it's a, you had everyone picked this apart. You had some weakness. Right. You had some strengths in it. It still gives the Fed some room for cover to cut rates. Okay. So I think, I think this is as close to a not-too-hot, not-too-cold reading nice. for the market, and we saw the market react to it almost immediately. Yeah, I totally agree on the Fed bit here. I think if we had a number that was very, very strong and then everyone had to reduce their probabilities of, of further Fed accommodation or mid-cycle adjustments, I think that would uh, cause risk asset, assets to sort of shake. But this is right in that sweet spot where it's we're still growing, but we're not growing so fast. And the right. Fed can continue on that path. It's difficult think- to think about a recession, as I said before, with a 3.5 yeah. percent unemployment, unemployment rate. rate. I yeah. know that every economist can pick through this. This is probably a tailwind for Trump. Wink, wink, head nod. But still, <laughs> you know, at, at, at this point, it's about the economy. And for it to go this long, right. extended this cycle, really is a testament to how strong this overall economy probably is. Hey, Austin, how quickly can these numbers change? How, how quickly would they change if we were actually seeing a turn in things? I mean, if you go back and look at previous recessions, they could turn pretty quickly. And if a recession begins, the strongest part of the economy now is that consumer confidence and consumer spending remain strong. That can turn around very rapidly in a space of just a couple of months. You can see big drops in consumer confidence. Now, it doesn't mean that it, that it will happen, no, but that's no. the... 
That's the reason not to just say, hey, well, 135000 a month is okay, and so it's probably going to be fine. I mean, if we got in an escalating trade war, manufacturing's already in a recession, and retail is already in a recession. And those are two pretty decent-sized chunks of the economy. So we got to count on the other stuff really kind of maintaining itself. And the rest of the world, the U.S. is still doing better than than all the other advanced countries. So it's, it's not a, primarily about U.S. policy, but there, there are just a lot of dangers out in the world that everybody should keep their eye on. Steve, what's the next big thing we look at in the markets? <laughs> well, I, I think it's the Fed coming up, and obviously China trade. We have to look at those talks. You have the Fed coming up. Those are, and then you have minutes next week. And then you have earnings starting. That's so right. we haven't had anything to really dig into fundamentally for this marketplace. That's why we've been enamored with everything around it. Right. Once we start to see that there's not an earnings recession, the Fed, China, all of this could be a tailwind. And I don't think that we're going to have the same October, November, December that we had in 2018. That seems to me what everyone's worried about. So you don't think we're going to drop 20 percent in the next three months? <laughs> so that's good, right? That's, 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 a, posi- that's a positive. But when you think about it, it's all about positioning in the marketplace. And I think that everyone got uh, abundantly too negative based on what we saw in the last couple of months last year. And I don't think they're positive enough for the potential for the market to rip higher now. And I just want to go back to the earnings bit here, because that's right. We're focusing so much on the trade talks that begin next week. But I think that the first reports from companies on uh, third quarter earnings are going to be really important for equity market sentiment. We already know that 2020 numbers are too high and revisions are likely to come down. But if we end up getting a solid you know, uh, bit of guidance from companies as they report, Maybe those downward revisions are not as stark, and then we'll have the opposite effect of what we've had over the last couple of weeks, which is a, rest- a restoration of confidence in some of the corporate side. Well, you've been talking. Our president's been tweeting. We'll, we'll let maybe Austin or Rick respond if there's something to say here. He writes, breaking news, unemployment rate at 3.5% uh, drops to a 50-year low, he writes in all capitals. He says, wow, America, let's impeach your president, in parentheses, even though he did Nothing wrong, exclamation point. Rick and Austin, you guys can go at it if you like. Hey, I agree I, with There's them. nothing it's for great me the other there to go at right it, as so well. Austin can take over. <laughs> All I, it's, I agree with him. I said that the unemployment rate going down, it, that's, that's excellent. When you get to the question of impeachment, let's, let's save that one for another day. All right, I want to thank our jobs panel today. Great to see everybody. Cheese will be next. Phew, you made it. Up next on Squawk Pod, capitalism in the crosshairs. If you are not hitting your numbers for the shareholder, nobody's giving you extra credit for nailing the other component parts. And later, Blackstone Steve Schwarzman on his early days as a captain of industry. I'll give you a hundred. A hundred what? hundred million dollars. This is Squawk Pod. We're back with just Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Steve Grasso now. Here's Andrew. Hugh Andrew. We have two tech CEOs speaking out this morning about the future of capitalism and wealth in America. Here's Salesforce's CEO Mark Benioff at the TechCrunch Disrupt Conference. I really strongly believe that capitalism as we know it is dead that we're going to see a new kind of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that new kind of capitalism that's going to emerge is not the Milton Friedman capitalism that it's just about making money. Right. And if your orientation is just about making money, I don't think you're going to hang out very long 
as a CEO or a founder of a company. You have to be more than that in today's world. You certainly have to be more than that in San Francisco. And, and that's and because you certainly you need that have to be more than right? that in our tech industry as well. And Benioff later posed this question. He said, if trust isn't your highest value, then what is? And I think this gets to the whole question of shareholder primacy and what the business roundtable said. I don't know if he's right or if he's wrong. I think that I think the key thing in what he said was, especially if you're in San Francisco, I think that's very, probably right. But you right. know what? But the difference is, if you are not hitting your numbers for the shareholder, right. it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. The rest of it, and I hate to say this, it doesn't matter. Nobody's giving you extra credit for nailing the other component parts. Agreed. Look at the look at the CEO of eBay. By the way, they do they do all sorts of great things, and he's out. Why is he out? Because he's not hitting the numbers for the company. And so, right, but we're going to the next step now. Even when they're hitting the numbers for the company, there's how much do yes. they need to make. So now we've. But we've, I don't know if it's you're saying how much do they need to make for the shareholders or no. The CEO. No, how much? Is it, how much does the CEO? So you have people weighing in saying you've made too much. You oh, don't need oh, to make that much on the compensation front. Right. What's the right ratio? Right? Oh, I think we, that. Right. No, that. Look, that's a so question. That's and by the way, that, should there be billionaires, which is something that's been brought that's up. That's the next stage. So everyone, once you get down that path, once you get down that path. What I notice is billionaires are the first ones to say they don't want any other billionaires. They've already made it. They want to make it tougher to hurdle those those jumps for the rest that are coming after them. Well, let's jump in to one of those billionaires. Separately, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg held a surprise Q&A session with employees last night. He sympathized with Bernie Sanders' view on billionaires. I understand where he's coming from. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't know if I have like an exact threshold on, on like on, on what what amount of money someone should have. But but look, I mean, at some level, no one deserves to have that much money. Zuckerberg compared himself to a robot who needs recharging and joked about the live stream. He said, at this point, I do such a bad job at interviews that what do we have to lose? Which I have to say, I think the more he steps out and talks, the better, he is. The, better the better yeah. off he is. We're, but we are at an interesting moment. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's about the company having to do more. I don't know if it's about taxes. Is that really the answer? I think answer? it has to do with the political wins. Joe would laugh if he was here. We don't have enough people espousing the virtue of what capitalism can do, because I think that that's actually what is driving our whole economy and everything else, and that's the important part. I think the that. flip side of that is we haven't nailed how we collect revenue and how we spend revenue as a government to make sure that opportunities are equal and everybody has an opportunity. I understand. To get and, 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 that's the and even if we haven't nailed it, it's still better than the alternative better that you see around, around right. the world. Better right? than the alternative, no question. The question is, can we nail it? And I think that's, but the but I, I think is, that's a real what's question. What's happened to reasonable sorts of solutions to these things that you could get Democrats and Republicans to agree right. on? Things like extended the earned income tax credit, which Republicans and Democrats right. in the past used to talk about all the time. Is that being a very fair way right. of trying to do this and making sure that nobody falls below a living wage? Right. And, and, and ideas like that have been thrown out the window. We're just going to go after any success and take it down. Right. But we also have to realize the, the middle class and the lower income earners are the wealthiest and have the most out yeah, of any look, other even, nation. Even Steve Schwartzman. Yeah, but that's, who, a, that's a weak Steve, argument. You're not no, it's, it's a weak argument, yeah. but it's the truth. Steve Schwartzman, who is a devout Republican, will come on the show and say that he thinks that the American dream is struggling, too. So that's not... That's, and that, that's fine. And, and, I think and, the issue and a lot is, of times, to be politically correct, you have to say no, that. No, no, but I think even beyond that, I think there's a fair <laughs> argument to be made that we have to figure out a way to actually make the opportunity piece equal. Because today, it's harder... Do it's you harder. think the opportunity piece is not equal? A hundred percent. 
And I think where is it? Where is it lacking? Where is the lack of opportunity? Education opportunities. Why is that though? Today, if you look at today, if you look at every, would you send your kid to a public school that had a low or failing rate if you had the opportunity to go? Well, you should you should have the ability to get yourself into a position to succeed. But 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 the point is, if you're in the lowest quartile, the ability today to be in the lowest quartile and get into the even to the next quartile, let alone the top quartile, is it is materially harder to do today. And it was 20 years ago and 30 years and 40. We've not improved. We've actually gone backwards. There's no that. It's that's still, better, even than, up for it's still debate. better than any other system that you can find. Better right. than any, but I'm saying it's not as good as it used to be. And so that's the, when people talk people about that want the to American succeed, dream. People that want to succeed, succeed. And, and I know it's not politically that, correct to say that. And everyone wants to say. I think, every, ma- I think I, to be honest with you, in fairness, I think mathematically that's incorrect. Save that tape. OK, we'll talk more about it. Next on Squawk Pod, a revealing conversation with Blackstone CEO and Wall Street titan Steve Schwarzman. I realized I was about to cry, and I was saying, I'm just not allowed to cry. I just can't do this. Back after this. This is Squawk Pod, taking you behind the sounds of Squawk Box from CNBC. Today, billionaire Steve Schwarzman. He's co-founder and CEO of the Blackstone Group, a major private equity firm. With $545 billion in assets under management and a portfolio of companies that employ about a half a million people. That makes him a sought-after investor, but also an advisor with an influence beyond Wall Street. Schwarzman recruited and organized the original CEO advisory panels that met with the Trump administration in 2017. He's also a prolific philanthropist, giving $100 million to the New York Public Library, $150 million to Yale, and $350 million to MIT to establish a new college of computing. Schwarzman's new book is called What It Takes, and it offers stark personal stories about his early career. Steve joined Becky Quick at the CNBC and Institutional Investor Delivering Alpha Conference last month. I caught up with Becky Quick about that conversation. Look, people look at Steve Schwarzman and they see one of the titans in the industry, uh, private equity, a guy who built this enormous firm that he's running. Uh, but you, you have to remember that all huge success stories start with people who are out there trying to uh, bring in business. And Steve was really honest about how hard it was at the beginning. After being somebody who was successful on Wall Street, somebody who had uh, been an investment banker and had done very, very well, to then going out and starting on his own. He and Pete Peterson were the two who did it. And these are both guys who had come from very lofty heights. Then when they were out on their own and they were entrepreneurs, um, it was a tough adjustment to get used to asking people for money and having them say no. It was fascinating how vulnerable um, he is in, in recalling his, his early days. He, he, he also told a story um, about how somebody almost made him cry when he lost money in one of those early ventures. And that was incredibly emotional. You really had the room kind of soaking it up to, to hear this guy who you think of as making other people cry is almost crying himself. And, and that was a tough lesson that he took in, too, that this is never going to happen to me again. His firm got better as a result because they really put in all kinds of... of uh, checks and balances to make sure that you were mitigating risk in any and every investment that went through. Right. No old, brave people in finance. Yes, I think that was his line. That's right. Here's Becky Quick and Steve Schwarzman, and they're speaking in front of a few hundred people having lunch, which is the background noise that you hear. We started out in 1985, and we had a business plan uh, to go into the advisory uh, business because it didn't require any capital. We only put up $400,000, uh, 200 apiece. Uh, and you could talk, and people would give you millions of dollars. 
I, I, you know, now I'm talking for free. Uh, but so, so I, I've always gone backwards. Uh, that was the first thing we wanted to do. And the second thing was to go into the private equity business. And, and then the third thing was to start uh, new businesses, some of which have become, you know, like a real estate business, which is the biggest in the world now. Uh, you know, you started when you saw like something really decline where it looked like an amazing opportunity that, that even as an amateur manager, I couldn't screw up. Uh, it would just happen by itself uh, because your timing was right. Uh, if you could hire somebody who was a 10 on a scale of 10 to run it, uh, and if the business itself generated intellectual capital that could make your existing businesses stronger. So that, that was the simple plan. And we're still just doing exactly the same thing, except we're doing it at, at sort of like much bigger scale than when you start and it's just an idea. So as to what Becky asked me, uh, as part of our second part of our strategy, we decided to raise a private equity fund. We sent out 500 uh, you know, little letters and offering circulars and nobody called. You need enormous emotional stability because you get rejected so often in our money raising operation first fund we got one yes and 17 no's and you know we we were completely dead uh and you know we'd run out of the big guys to go to see and we had one left it was the prudential and you know i was pitching my heart out it was a friday uh at the pru uh garnett keith uh, who was the chief investment officer were there that in a way was a was a privilege because usually you saw these like grundoons you know, in the middle level of something, and you, they don't even care. He's the chief investment officer of the biggest insurance company in the world. I mean, this is like hot stuff. He looks at me and he says, that's really interesting what you're thinking of doing. I'll give you 100. And I'm thinking, 100 what? <laughs> $100 million. $100 million from the reference institution in the world. Everybody else except two people turned us down. And here is this man giving us $100 million. This is like visiting heaven. Steve, let me ask you about some of the skills you've developed along the way. One of them is identifying talent. You're looking for somebody who can hold the table. Some, you're trying to figure out how big their brain is, how logical and how quickly and how seamlessly they can move from things to thing. How do they think deeply? How do they think about something that comes up that they don't know about? How do they handle that? Do they try and fake it? That's a bad idea, right? You always get caught. Uh, or do they say, in effect, I really haven't studied that. I'm not familiar with that that much. Uh, what is it you're interested in there? So that's like a good response, right? You know, and and. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll walk in for an interview like most of you because nobody here has a dull life and you've just had some fascinating interaction with somebody, um, you know, uh, some deal-oriented thing or whatever, and you're so excited, you say, geez, I just had the most amazing experience because I, I get amazed easily because you know, a lot of things happen to me. And I'll just start talking about that. And you usually get a range of responses. One, like... What the hell am I doing in this room with this person? That's the wrong response, right? And it's, it's sort of like I'm inviting somebody into my world. And 
do they want to join it? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it interesting? Uh, do they have questions? Or do they sit there in sort of shocked amazement saying, this was not what I was expecting? Mm-hmm. That is also the wrong answer. <laughs> because in all of our lives here in this room, you know, there's always something happening that mm-hmm. you, you weren't anticipating. So the, this ability to handle incoming stuff uh, and take it in, make it into something, deal with it in whatever way you know, you're comfortable, uh, that's fine. So, so what you learn, and one other tip, is always keep your eyes locked on that other person because the eyes uh, are the window to the soul. And you can tell so much by just watching someone. Uh, they'll tell you who they are. And in a way, it's just like um, speed dating, right? Mm. How fast can you figure out that this person's a loser? <laughs> uh, speaking of that, what's the worst trade you ever made? I greenlighted an investment uh, in a company called Edgecombe Steel. Mm. It was a steel distribution business. Uh, and... Um, we had no process. It was third investment. And so I, I may pretend uh, I was King Solomon. So I'm behind the desk and somebody walks in and, and you know, without really a written presentation, they say, well, I know this company. I work with them for years. They'll give us an exclusive and blah, blah, blah. And here's the multiple. And, you know, so that sounded pretty good. Uh, and then one of the other partners at the firm heard this was going on. Talk about mismanagement, Right. He heard about it. So he came to my office. He said, this company is going to go bankrupt. Six months later, we couldn't pay our principal and interest and lost all of our equity in the process. And uh, one of my investors uh, called and asked to see me. I sat in that wooden chair in front of his desk, uh, and the guy started screaming at me that I was the most incompetent person he had ever met. And, you know, my, my face is, is getting red. And I realized I was about to cry. And, um, and I was saying, I'm just not allowed to cry. I just can't do this. Because this guy who was excoriating me was absolutely right. It was really a completely uh, shameful uh, moment. And I, I fought it off. I went... I had a cab in the parking lot, and I got into the parking lot, and I looked around, and I said, it's never going to happen to me again. And as a result of that, uh, what I would call colossal uh, failure, uh, we changed the whole way uh, we, we approach investments. The rule is everybody has to uh, interrogate that team. Everybody has to talk about the risks of an investment. Investing sh- should should be rational and orderly, collaborative, uh, using everybody's experience and intelligence. So it makes working in an organization like that incredibly comfortable because you don't get blamed. Steve, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. That's the show for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Mark your calendar. 
Get your DVR ready. And do people even use DVRs anymore? As we see, it's like we're dating ourselves. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend.